Hey everybody, welcome to Studio HFL. I'm Larry Powell, your host. And on today's interview, the one and the only Bobby Shue. And I'll let you know that this is a pretty long interview, about an hour and 40 minutes. And I thought about breaking this into two parts and, and even considered editing quite a bit out. But during the edit process, I just thought there's so much great information and so many good stories in here, I just couldn't cut it out. So uh, there's a lot of pedagogy. There's a lot of science and a lot of great stories and some and some humor. If you know Bobby, he's also got a great sense of humor. So I uh, hope you enjoy today's interview with Bobby Shu. This is actually from June 22nd this year, 2020. Uh, but before we get to the interview, this. Continued interviews from Studio HFL are made possible through the support of Messina Covers, Eastman Music Company, Pickett Blackburn, S.E. Shires, and through the generosity of Patreon subscribers. Trumpet players can be kind of picky when it comes to cases, perhaps even more so than other brass instrumentalists. If you have an idea for a custom case, then Messina Covers has your solution for completely custom case designs, even down to crazy color schemes. Let's not forget about options for mouthpiece pouches, or pretty much anything you'd want to keep protected in a custom case. Check them out at MessinaCovers.net. If you're looking for excellence in trumpets, trombones, horns, and tubas, you need look no further than the Eastman Music Company and S.E. Shires. Eastman offers a complete line of brass instruments, from the beginner all the way up to the professional. And you know they're invested in creating a quality product when the legendary Doc Severinsen helped design Eastman's beginner trumpet model. You can find more information about the Eastman Music Company at EastmanWinds.com and you can learn more about the S.E. Shires line of instruments at seshires.com. Pickett Blackburn has established themselves as a top-tier resource for trumpet players. If you haven't had a chance to try any mouthpieces available through Pickett, you can check them out online at pickettblackburn.com. And on the Blackburn side of Pickett Blackburn, it would be worth your while to check out their incredible line of trumpets endorsed by such great musicians as Vince DiMartino. Be sure to check them out at pickettblackburn.com and that's Pickett with two T's. And before today's interview, just a reminder that you too can be a financial supporter for this podcast by subscribing at patreon.com slash studiohfl. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash studiohfl. There are four tiers of support, and you can choose the one that best fits your budget. Your support will help offset the cost of production for this podcast and would be greatly appreciated please consider becoming a subscriber at patreon.com slash studiohfl. And now, on to today's interview with your host, Larry Powell. Bobby Shu, it is really a treat to have you uh, here today on my podcast. I'm thrilled you're here, and I hope we have some fun over the next little bit. Oh, well, thank you so much. I'm, as I said, I'm flattered and overjoyed to do this. Yeah. Uh, you know, we met um, just like uh, however many, many thousands of people have passed you at an ITG and shaken your hand. That's, that happened a few years ago, but uh, it's nice to, to meet you. Well, we're not exactly in person, but uh, it's nice to meet you and, and uh, get to have a little chat here together. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm honored. You know, as I said, I'm, I never know who knows who I am. Even, you know, that's. <laughs> That's one of the things about I've never I've never strived for, uh, you know, to be famous, so to speak, I suppose, you know, 
I was always, uh, I was like quite, um, I guess shy as a kid, you know, growing up. <laughs> it, was, it was improvisation that actually was like a therapy for me. It brought me out of that hiding place, you know. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. but I've never really wanted to be famous, you know. I've never really wanted to to be on the on the serial buses or anything yeah. like that. Well, well, too it's late like, for that because you're you are famous, right? <laughs> I, I don't know. I mean, I yeah. I mean. I, I can go into restaurants and people not recognize me and I can go into the grocery store and people don't ask for an autograph and so forth. So mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I, I want, I guess what well, I, I jokingly said years ago that I'm probably one of the most famous unknown guys in the world. <laughs> and and yeah. uh, I like the, I like the, I like to be known just enough to that the phone rings and I get gigs, but uh, I don't <laughs> really want to be uh, Yeah somebody i don't want to be a chuck mangione a recognizable yeah you well know. i you know what i think it's the hat that would give him away right i mean that yes, was the, an iconic thing for him and it was dizzy's trumpet you know and the cheeks. cheeks you yeah. know you have some sort of uh <laughs> i don't have anything you know it's funny that you mentioned improvisation because uh i, I went to your website today just to to do a final glance and in preparing for today and I noticed you started improvising really early at 12 years old yeah. yeah and you know so you just mentioned that was kind of a therapy for you to uh, did you know well you knew you were shy but how in the world did you take that first step to, to know, do that it was a uh, interesting thing about all of this and uh, and I, I preface a little of this by saying that um, I discovered psychology and philosophy at age 14 <laughs> by, uh, from an older saxophone player that I was playing with. He was studying a philosophy class at the university, and I was 14 years old, and we were on a gig together. And, uh, and on a break, uh, he and the other guys, they were all adults. I was the only kid in the band. Mm -hmm. uh, they were discussing in the band room a uh, 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 different philosophy, and they brought up this he had this book called the, the practice of Zen by Alan Watts, you know, mm -hmm. and they were studying Zen Buddhism. And I never even heard of such a thing. You know, I'd only mm -hmm. been mostly on my knees trying to figure out what a Holy ghost was in the Catholic church. You know? <laughs> <laughs> but uh, anyway, uh, I saw that book and I heard the discussion and it sounded so interesting. I thought, what the heck are they talking about? You know, I mean, yeah, I mean, I understood kind of, but, so I ordered that book. I went downtown a couple of days later and, got, and bought that book and read it at 14 mm -hmm. years old. It was way over my head, but I mm -hmm. discovered nirvana, enlightenment, and so forth. Mm -hmm. So I am prefacing this whole answer to your question with that is, ever since then, I've been like really deeply into psychology and philosophy and things of that sort. Mm -hmm. I had certain fears as a kid. You know, I was, I was born out of, my mom was uh, out of wedlock, so I was, you know, she was thrown out of the Catholic Church for getting mm -hmm. pregnant, you know, with uh, with me. And that she decided after a few attempts to, to jump off the chairs and it didn't work, she decided to go ahead and have me anyway. And wow. So wow. I'd lived kind of shy and kind of, I was the black sheep in the family because I was a bastard, you know, and all of that. But mm. the thing about it is that uh, uh, it kept me very kind of quiet and reserved. Mm -hmm. And at five years old, my mom... Uh, married uh, uh, one of my stepfathers, 
where I got the name Shu, that was at five years old, and uh, mm -hmm. he's not my, I have no blood relationship to him whatsoever. Mm -hmm. But he was pretty violent, and he kept me beat. He beat on me a lot, so it mm. kept me in a in a withdrawal sort of a situation, you know. Mm -hmm. And as I grew up, I was always kind of ducking, kind of to be, avoid being hit and spanked for stuff I didn't do and shit like mm -hmm. that, you know. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. but the point being was that, and so I the the answer is that. I took up the trumpet. He had played the trumpet for a couple of years. He was miserable, but he had one in a closet. Mm -hmm. He let me borrow it and get started in the beginning band. And uh, the interesting thing that I look back at, and I've told this story many times, and sometimes I am still in disbelief, but it's it's not there's not an ounce of uh, of, of untruth in it. Uh, he he showed me how to do a certain thing with my lips, like a buzz like that you know mm -hmm. and then he handed me the trumpet and I tried to play by into the trumpet and it didn't work and he said no drop your jaw and open that up and I went up and this big fat note came out I went these things are easy to play you know? <laughs> and it just got easier from there right <laughs> well it's yeah on top of that here's the other thing because this is a, a worthwhile answer for people to, to know about he showed me um he showed me uh, how to play the C scale, the fingerings up and down, mm -hmm. and then the chromatic scale up and down, and just one octave only, you know, up to the third space C. Uh, but then he showed me how to read, you know, and whole note, half note, quarter note, eighth notes, and what two four meant and what four four meant, you know, mm -hmm. and and I was I was not a stupid kid. I was a fairly bright kid through school and made good grades. School was kind of easy and boring to me in mm -hmm. ways, to be honest with you. But um, so I had bought this Walter Beeler book, one of those little tiny beginner books, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And um, so after he, he sat with me no longer than about probably maybe 35 minutes, something like that. And so then I opened up this book and I started playing tunes out of it. And uh, so I played for a little while, four or five tunes or something. And then they came in and said, it's time to go to bed. So, you know, okay. So, <laughs> all right. So I packed it up. And the next day I went to school. I was in the fifth grade at uh, La Luz Elementary School uh, in Albuquerque. And I walked in the, and uh, we had, there was about seven of us in the school that were in a beginning band. And so mm -hmm. I went in to beginning band into the principal's office. There we had no band room, we had the principal's <laughs> office. And this lady, the violin teacher, a violin player uh, by the name of Joyce Johnson, she was the band director. So I came in and she says, oh, did you got your horn? Did you get the book? I says, yeah. I said, but I'm sorry, I didn't get a, I didn't get a chance to play all those tunes last night. My, my parents made me go to bed and she looked at me like, what? <laughs> it was my first day, you know? Right. And so she said, she opened the book to the back and she said, uh, did you play this one? And I said, no. She said, can you play it now? And I sat, read it down. And she said, go back to class. You're not going to be in the beginning band. <laughs> she says, you come on Saturday morning to Stronghurst Junior High School and you're going to be in the advanced band. I didn't know what the hell she was talking about. Mm -hmm. I thought I'd screwed up. I thought I've had the horn in my hands five minutes. I'm in trouble already. You know? <laughs> but, uh, but you know, and the thing about it, this is this is totally a true story. And 
I went Saturday morning. This was all on a Thursday. So I pissed around with the horn, you know, what Thursday and night and Friday and so mm-hmm. forth. By Saturday morning, when I got down to, to audition for the advanced band, it was a lady clarinet, a girl clarinet player and me. We all both had to audition. I got second chair in the advanced band my first day because <laughs> I could read. Yeah. And I had a, a setting, a mouthpiece setting that worked. And one of the things now, how, how this all evolves into my teaching and everything now, I've been teaching now, I could put quotes around that word teaching because I'm <laughs> not really fond of it, you know, but mm-hmm. it's my 64th year of doing that. Oh my gosh. I was, four, I was 14 when I gave my first lesson. Yeah. Uh, 15, you know, something like that. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm 79 now, going on to 80. And so uh, what happened is, um, as I look back at that, at that in all the years of teaching, the, the most common problem with brass players is that they play too tight. Mm-hmm. It's the most common frailty. And it holds them back, uh, first and foremost, on the tone quality. Mm-hmm. It affects their intonation. It affects their ability to ascend. Range is going to be limited. Endurance is going to be restricted by that. And it's that one thing. It's called aperture control. And that is what it takes to learn to play a, a wind instrument, mm-hmm. whether it's a saxophone or a clarinet too. You still, I mean, you're still controlling even the flute. Right. You're still controlling the, the airstream and the aperture and so mm-hmm. forth. You know? So with what happened with me, with my stepfather said, drop my jaw and open that up. He took the pinch out of it. And I got that dot. And once you open it up, the airstream goes out the aperture and it makes mm-hmm. a note. Mm-hmm. Imagine that, you know, so. I've had students uh, from all over the world, you know, go online in a Skype lesson or a, on a Zoom or something, and and uh, they're struggling. And I just say, "Oh, drop your jaw and open that up," and they go, "Holy Christ, Bobby's a genius!" You know, I'm not a genius. It's just a simple. It's a simple fact in the science of acoustical physics. Yeah, you must not. You can't. If you plug up the water in your house, you ain't going to take a bath. You know. So, but but you didn't realize it. I mean, at you know, on that Thursday, you didn't realize what was going on. You just no, knew no, you were able I to, right? Yeah. I had no clue. As yeah. a matter of fact, I would say to you that it took me years before I had a clue. Probably at least a decade and a half, maybe even almost two. Maybe. Mm-hmm. But what I, you know, the problem w- was that I was playing comfortably well. And I didn't know why, you know, I just, people, people were saying, God, how can you play like that? I mean, I don't know. I thought everybody played like that. I didn't know that other people had problems. I just thought that's the way it all worked, you know? Mm -hmm. And as I went through school and watched other people trying to play, I started to see them. Why, I don't, why are you not playing better? You know? (laughs) (laughs) So there was a, there was a trombone player by the name of Jim Richards who lived on the street behind us. Our backyards were sort of almost adjacent and mm-hmm. he knew that I could play, you know, and he's a trombone player and his sister clarinet. And uh, he was hearing me all the time in the yard and up in my tree house playing and all the neighbors were listening to me and stuff like that, mm-hmm. you know? And uh, so I was first chair in everything. Three months after I got in the advanced man, <laughs> I was told I had to challenge Jim, the, the Thomas, the lead player. Yeah. First player, so I challenged and I got first chair, and I sat in first chair and 
every band, all state band, all state orchestras, everything mm -hmm. all the time, all through school. I never knew what it was like to play second, you know. <laughs> but wow. uh, it, but the thing about it was that uh, Jim Richards, uh, there's some guy formed a, a band and Jim called me up and said, uh, there's a guy forming a dance band. Would you like to play in it? I said, gee, I'd love to, but I don't have, I don't know how to dance. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's actually true. Yeah. Jim, is still, Jim is still alive. He lives in El Paso. He, and, uh, but, you know, uh, he and another guy, uh, who, uh, another guy here who was still my friend when we get together, he was a Harvard law professor for years, but he was, he was a cornet player in the band with me, but he was mm -hmm. a couple of years ahead. And so they all recommended me for this band. And I showed up the first night we were playing Glenn Miller music. That was new mm -hmm. in those days. And uh, so on a break, I heard the baritone sax player in the rhythm section. They started a little jam thing, you know? And I was headed for the Coke machine. Then I heard, what the hell are they doing, you know? <laughs> and I walked over there and I was looking for a music stand. I wanted to see what this stuff looked like. Because it was wild, you know? And I thought, Jesus, that must look cool. <laughs> and, and then, the baritone player, his name was Tony Artiaga. He was from the uh, Isleta Indian Reservation. Mm -hmm. Baritone player. I remember all these guys' names and everything. You know? mm -hmm. And uh, so he was playing. He had his eyes closed and wiggling around with the horn. And I went, geez, what the hell is going on with this guy, you know? And so uh, when he finished the solo, I said, where's the music? He says, oh, no, man, we don't use no music. We make it up in our heads. And I went, <laughs> What? And I said, can I try that? He said, yeah, you can play a solo after Kenny. Oh, call the solo. So I went and got my horn and I f stood there and listened. And I played a few notes to figure out what key they're in. Mm -hmm. And all I, all I did was just listen to the sounds. And they were playing a blues, it turns out, because there was basically only three chords going mm -hmm. by. And I could, after a few courses, I started to see the sameness of it, you know? Mm -hmm. And I was sensing the rhythm between the bass and the drums, the ride cymbal and everything. And I had a natural inclination. I could feel that. So there, there are basically, in my estimation, this is my opinion, my observation over the years of teaching, but I think there are basically two gifts that a person can possibly have in music. And one of them is, uh, I'm going to turn the light on here. Does that help at mm -hmm. all? Yeah, that's fine. Yeah. Uh, one of the gifts is uh, what they call a good ear. It's not perfect pitch, especially in an imperfect world that we live in with all of the chaotic sounds going on around. Mm -hmm. And plus the scientific fact that you cannot build any musical instrument in tune, period. Right. Scientifically impossible because of the overtone series and all of that. We have, that's why we have a tempered scale in the first place. But mm -hmm. a good ear is a relative pitch here. And it would mean I could play pa da po de po da pa da po da pa da pa da in any key kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So that's one gift. And the other gift is an internal sense of rhythm. I don't have to count bars. I can hear eight bars or four bars or 12 bars or 32 bars. I don't have to sit there and count one, two, three, four, two, two, three, four, three. I don't have to mm -hmm. do that, you know? Mm -hmm. So if I can hear and sense internal rhythm, those are the two most blessed gifts you can possibly have. I th I have a belief that, well, I'm not so sure I'm even right with this, but I've had a belief or maybe a, 
I wish that every human being had those gifts. But I've had students that can prove them prove me wrong on that. <laughs> so you know, it makes me wonder. I've I've had a, a student. I started uh, sixth grade, and you could tell after two weeks. I mean, the kid played ba 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 ba. You know, he was playing all the fingerings right, but he couldn't tell if he was that he was just stuck on a concert F. You know, yeah. and and I asked him. I said. Uh, can you tell, you know, we did some high and low testing. He had no sense of high and low. So what kind of music do you listen to? I don't listen to music. So what are your parents? Oh, we don't have music in the house. This kid grew up totally devoid of, you know, I mean, he, he had no idea, no concept of, of any of that. And I think in your case, was that, I mean, was there music in the house? Did you grow up listening to, were your parents playing different things? Well, I grew up. Um, my, living in my grandmother's house with my mom and a couple of aunts and one uncle. <clears throat> and uh, my mom and my grandmother were the only ones that seemed to take an interest in music. They had a bunch of 78s. Mm -hmm. And they were mostly um, things like, they were not jazz, they were like uh, Guy Lombardo, uh, Wayne King, mm -hmm uh things of that sort and the great caruso my mom loved the mm -hmm. great caruso and mm -hmm. so forth and they would listen to that and then the other thing was that i that i recalled and i think this was a very important link with my connection with the, with music was that there was the uh the bell telephone hour i think it was called mm -hmm. which was was it was a classical music thing on sunday evening and Every Sunday evening after dinner, we all were in the living room with my mom and my grandmother and me on the floor on a, bl on a blanket in a diaper, listening to uh, symphony stuff, you know? Mm -hmm. I don't think my parents could, I mean, my mom, I don't know if she could even spell symphony or my grandmother mm -hmm. either. My grandmother dropped out of school in the third grade, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know? Mm -hmm. But um, they like this music and I, the one that caught me that I remembered years later was Peter and the Wolf, which I would have probably been about a year and a half old when I heard that, between a year and a half and two. Mm -hmm. And that I realized that a, a bassoon could be a duck or something like that, you know, <laughs> whatever. <laughs> right. I went, what the hell? Right. You know, and I just thought, I do remember having an emotional link with hearing these animals come out of instruments, you know, mm -hmm. that, that stimulated something in me. I'm not sure what it did, but uh, it turned something on. And, <clears throat> but for the other years uh, and so forth, there was not much music going on around me, you know, mm -hmm. um, not really. My stepfather, <clears throat> he didn't care for music much at all. I mean, he tried to play the trumpet. I think he had, such a failed purpose thing there that it probably pissed him off. But he, if, when he did listen to anything, it was country and Western, you know, mm -hmm. um, that was about it. But um, I don't know how it all happened for me, but I had something inside of me that was very strong. Yeah. And as when I got, when I played that first solo at 12 years old, uh, I closed my eyes because Tony had his eyes closed. And I think that put me in a right brain kind of out of body experience kind of a thing. Mm 
and I just was playing. I just guess whatever the hell popped into my head, I just played it, you know. And I was just trying to play notes that fit with the chords that I heard and play rhythmically with what the drums and bass were doing, you know. And that's that's it. It's just playing by ear, you know. Mm -hmm. That's how the best players play. Yeah. Do you remember, uh, you know, the guys around you? Do you remember them saying anything to you after that? Well, yeah, that's the final, the, that's the coda of this little story. So. Yeah. End of the, well, I, they, had to, they had to stop me. I was in so deep into this thing. They came over and tapped me on the shoulder. Bobby, stop, stop. We got to rehearse. And I went, oh, where have I been? Kind of thing, you know. Branch <laughs> like stayed there. Mm -hmm. And so after the rehearsal, I got in the car with Jim Richards to go home. And as we were putting our horns in the trunk of the car, he says, you must listen to a lot of jazz records to be able to play solos like that. And I said, what's a jazz record? <laughs> and we went to his house and we went in into his bedroom. And the first thing he played for me was Dave Brubeck Quartet's first album on fantasy. And when I heard Paul Desmond play, I went, what the hell instrument is that? And he said, it's a sax. I went, that's a saxophone? That's how they're supposed to sound? <laughs> so he played two tunes off of that album. Then he played two tunes off of a Stan Getz with Strings album. And I went, holy crap, you know? And then he played two tunes off of a J.J. Johnson album. Mm -hmm. And I know trumpets. But what I heard, <laughs> it lit the fire. Mm -hmm. And I climbed the fence and went home. And I was just like floating. I mean, I was in another space. So the next day I broke my piggy bank and rolled up a bunch of coins and got on the bus and went downtown to a music store that had records. And uh, it was the same place that where they bought mutes and all that, mouthpieces. Mm -hmm. And I looked for those same three albums and I bought them. <laughs> and uh, I brought them home and I started listening to them every day. And were you were you playing along with them too? Well, I couldn't initially, but I was trying to, mm -hmm. you know, and there was a little too, going a little too rapidly for me, you know, but, <laughs> but, but I was able to catch up a little bit, you know, I put certain parts of it I could, you know, and, uh, but I knew I could sing along with it anyway in my head. And uh, so I think that was, those were the connections for me. And, you know, are you familiar with idiokinetics? No, I've not heard that before. Oh, well, this is like one of the most profound uh, subjects in the world. Let me get a little piece of paper here. And uh, I feel like I've been living under a rock since I don't know what that is. <laughs> no, you haven't been. But this is one of the most important terms in the world. I mean, it's for musicians, idiokinetics. Idio means idea, kinetic is kinetic energy, of course. Mm -hmm. So everything we do from scratch to blink to burp to whatever, it's, it's all a form of kinetic energy. Mm -hmm. Some people refer to it as muscle memory. In actual fact, it's neuromuscular because a muscle is just a piece of meat that is capable of flexing and doing things. Mm -hmm. but it, it doesn't have a brain. It doesn't know what to do mm -hmm. unless it's told. And so the neurons in the brain and how we set up programmed patterns in our brain is what 
connects us to mm-hmm. things that we do, whether it's getting a potato in our mouth or, or you know, whatever, certainly playing a horn. Mm-hmm. John Coltrane was famous for practicing using idiokinetics. He used to, I, I toured with John Coltrane's quartet when I was on Woody Herman's band back in 1965. We went to Europe for about three weeks with Coltrane's quartet, Nina Simone's trio and Jimmy McGriff's trio also mm-hmm. were on the tour with us. It was like a George Ween thing, you know? Mm-hmm. But I, on the planes, I sat uh, opposite Coltrane in one row behind him all the time. And this was before seat assignments. So mm-hmm. I just always watched where he sat and then I grabbed the next available <laughs> close to the place. But uh, I used to go to clubs in New York at Birdland and listen to him play all the time. I was a real, uh, I was a total like, what? I don't know, an apostle maybe. You know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. you know? And uh, so I watched him and he used to play, he would take a, a stick out of his a suitcase, I was briefcase, and he would hold this stick there, and he would close his eyes, and he would start fingering, oh. you know. Yeah. And whatever he's hearing in his head, he's fingering it. That's idiokinetics. Yeah. So, I teach a lot of that, and you know, I I've tried to get. I'm I've got beginners. I have a. I've never really taught beginners much in my life. I did when I was 14 years old, you know, mm-hmm. but. I didn't know what to do. I'd never taken any lessons. And that's the other thing. I've never had little trumpet lessons in my mm-hmm. life. So I'm completely self-taught, but there was only one trumpet teacher in my hometown and he hated anybody that was playing jazz or anything like that. You know? Oh my gosh, right. <laughs> he was my seventh grade band director. And so when he found out I was playing jazz, he wouldn't even let me play trumpet. He made me play, she put me on a sousaphone, you know, made me play sousaphone in the band. And then yeah. after, six weeks of making fart sounds i you know i was playing gigs already mm-hmm. on the weekends and stuff you know uh weddings and stuff but my mom finally said you know will you let him play the trumpet for god's sake you know mm-hmm. so once a parent gets involved in the band director pretty much bands right you. right so i'm curious so, you know yeah you, know, you said your stepfather taught you the c major scale taught you that uh Where'd you start learning the rest of the fundamentals or, or did, was it just, you went, you started playing, you started improvising, using your ear. Was there ever a point yeah. where? Well, I saw, cause I could read and I, we had books and there was a kid, Jim Wilmarth who lived up, down the street from me and a uh, trumpet player. And we used to get together and play duets uh, once in a while, you know, mm-hmm. and I was all learning all the, you know, the fingerings and the sharps and flats and the rhythms and stuff. They were quite easy for me actually. Mm-hmm. And there were about three or four different trumpet players within two blocks of me. And so we'd get together and compare notes. I never had any books, but I'd see a Clark book or an Arvin book and somebody else's stand and mm-hmm. I'd have a look at it, but I didn't really feel like I wanted to play all that stuff, you know? Yeah. My attempts to play classical music were, they were ill-fated. <laughs> I, <would say. laughs> I had the hardest time. Trying, I could never, I never did learn to double tongue or triple tongue. Um, the one band director I had in the seventh grade who hated jazz, uh, I asked him one day if he could show me. I'd heard Rafael Mendez play at Allstate Band. Mm-hmm. I went, holy crap, what was that, you know? And so I said, what is double tonguing? And so he sat down with me after school one day, and he said, and he showed me a low C at tuku, 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 tuku. 
And I tried to do it. And it was like, God, what is the world? And we tried it for no more than five minutes. And he finally said, nah, and he closed up the book. He said, no, we're not going to do this. That was the only attempted trumpet lesson I ever had in my life. Wow. And so uh, I cannot do that today. Really? Yeah, I cannot double tongue or triple tongue. Well, how are you ever going to become successful or famous and as a trumpet player? Well, I've worked <laughs> it out so far. Yeah, been... I know, I'm just kidding. You know, <laughs> Vinny's got a great story <laughs> about... Uh, you know, Vince is oh. a great story about uh, uh, double tonguing. You know, he was listening to Mendez and didn't know about double tonguing. So he just learned a tongue. Who are you talking about now? Vince DiMartino. Oh, yeah, Vinny. Okay. And he said, I just learned to, to single tongue really fast. And then he found out later, you know, about, about multiple tonguing. But, oh, yeah. Um, Vinny would that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So um, I'm curious. We're probably going to skip ahead a few years, but. Uh, was it 19, uh, was it 60, where you joined the, the service band? Yeah, the NORAD band in 1960. I got, I got drafted and um, uh, I was in college and studying to be an architect of all things, if you can imagine. Wow. It was my major in psychology minor, you know, and studying the commercial art and things of that sort. But um, I would always been, uh, I lived in a really horrible home when I was a kid, a terrible piece of shit. Mm -hmm. and, uh, so I discovered while all the kids were looking at nudist magazines at the at the drugstore, I was looking at at uh, Frank Lloyd Wright and home designs and floor plans mm -hmm. and stuff, mm -hmm. you know. And I really, I just became enamored with how you could design a home certain ways. And and then I be, I started observing houses around. How come my house is so shitty? Who designed this piece of mm -hmm. everything? You know, that kind of thing. But uh, you know. Uh, the main thing for me was that um, I, when I got into the NORAD band, I was fortunate because they were going to send me to Fort Sill, Oklahoma and um, artillery. And I thought that would have been the end of my ears. You know? mm -hmm. But um, there were, the band, NORAD band was playing here at Kirtland Air Force Base. And I ran into a friend in a music store that I used to play with on the Latin band. And he I said, where you been? He says, I'm in the service. I said, oh my God, I got to go any day. I just had my, mm -hmm. I already had my physical. I passed the physical and everything. Mm -hmm. I took drugs to try to fail the physical. And they, they found out and figured it out what I did. You know, yeah. <laughs> I said, how many drugs did you take to try to fail this thing? You know, I went, oops. <laughs> so anyway, uh, he said, well, we're playing up at the base tonight. Why don't you come up, bring your horn and audition, man? He said, I said, military band marching around playing, you know, Stars and Stripes forever. That doesn't sound fun to me. <laughs> he said, no, 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 no. It's a big band. So I got up there and crying out loud, they sounded fantastic. Mm -hmm. you know? If you've ever heard any of the recordings of that band, they were like insanely good, you know? Yeah. Phil, Phil Wilson was the lead trombone player in the band at that time. Uh, and uh, eventually there were people like, you know, well, Paul Fontaine, from Woody Herman's band was the jazz player in the band, and I, I was replacing him. Mm -hmm. So Bill Prince had, had been in that band. Warren Looning was my replacement. Oh wow! You know there <laughs> were some monster players in mm -hmm. that band over the years. You know, and uh, Randy Allcroft. You know all these people. Gosh, it was amazing. So anyway, um, I I went up and audition. I sat in, and. So I read a few parts and stood up and played a solo and the, mm -hmm. the colonel took me into the office and wrote my orders right then and there. And I went down the next day and I enlisted and I had to give three years instead of two for draft. 
but by enlisting, I got to choose my assignment. Right. And so I was extremely pleased and I had to go to basic training and do all of that stuff. But, um, you know, it was okay. I could tolerate it. It was all right. Mm -hmm. And uh, then after that, I joined the band and, and I spent, I got out, they actually got me out two and a half months early mm -hmm. to go on the Tommy Dorsey band. They, mm -hmm. they routed me out of the service early. <laughs> so I, I had auditioned for the Dorsey band and, and uh, I made it. And so I told the Colonel what happened. He says, well, I'll get you out. So he, about 48 hours later, I was in mm -hmm. Vegas on the band. So I want to go back. You said something uh, about going to school for architecture. Uh, is, is it that you didn't consider that music would be uh, or could be a, a viable no, route? I, was, I wasn't aware of the music business, really, other than playing for weddings around town, you know. You know, mm -hmm. I mean, I knew there were I knew there were jazz clubs and things. I, I really did. I, when I got out of high school, I drove to Blo Chicago and then to Bloomington, Indiana, and I attended the the first year of the Kenton uh, Summers stage band camps, you know, mm -hmm. I came back again in 60, but I went on into New York too. And I drove, parked my car in New Jersey and, and spent like seven weeks in New York, just mm -hmm. listening to Miles and Kenny Dorham and everybody, Sid mm -hmm. and Bill Woods and, you know, Al Cohen, all those people, G-Man, Zoot, everybody, I was like going crazy, you know? And, um, uh, so I was aware of the business, but I never, I guess that shyness, I never thought, like earlier on, if you wanted to pursue music, you were saying, I want to be a band director, which is not what I wanted to be. I wanted to play music, but I didn't understand the business well enough how to pursue a mm -hmm. career in that. And I, I didn't have this tremendous amount of confidence in myself either. So I never thought of myself as, as, any good and even though i was better than i thought i was mm -hmm. people everybody else was shaking their heads going holy crap who is this kid you know mm -hmm. and i'd go sit in with adults when i was 14 or 15 and mm -hmm. and play better than them they couldn't they were embarrassed by mm -hmm. but i it, i just had a natural thing i was listening to music pretty much every penny i made on any gig i bought lps with it and mm -hmm. i mean at one point i had about fourteen thousand. LPs in my collection. I'm down to about half of that now. Wow. But because when we moved, I gave away a whole lot of stuff. Mm -hmm. but, uh, but I still have, I still listen, you know, I mean, I, I, I listen to everything I can possibly get my hands on. I'm not, you know, I, I try to listen to keep abreast of the new kids that are coming up, you know, but uh, I still have to go back and hear, I still got to hear Miles and Kenny Dorham and Clifford and, mm -hmm. People like that, you know. I yeah. mean, there's nobody out there like now about like that. Yeah. Uh, in the NORAD band, uh, doing a lot of standards. Were they doing a lot of the dance band tunes from from the decades before, or what were they playing? Well, the Colonel Azulina, who was uh, the, the the leader of the band, was a, a singer. He had been in, in he had been a warrant officer. And then he got out and then he sang around Hollywood for years as like casuals band leader and all that, you know, he was a kind of a Sinatra type of a singer. He wasn't bad actually. Uh, but uh, then there was not enough money. So he went back and he got into, uh, he enlisted and became into officer's training school and he became an officer, got back in. 
His mm -hmm. father was a famous band director in uh, Fort Benning, Georgia. And uh, his name was Philip Azalina. And so, uh, and Mark Azalina was our director. And so that's what we did. And we had guys in the band that wrote charts. Bill, Bill Prince wrote some charts. A guy in Chicago, Jerry Zervik, wrote some stuff. Phil Wilson wrote a lot of charts. Some of the best things in the book were Phil Wilson's charts, mm -hmm. actually. And um, even I started writing for Big Band in there. I wrote some mm -hmm. stuff, a few things. But uh, there was a really good deal because that's all we did was go around and promote the North American air defense system. We were all through Canada, Iceland, Greenland, all up through Alaska, everywhere. We were. I, we played a, a concert on an ice floe about just a couple of miles from the <laughs> North Pole. And we flew in there on helicopters and set up and, played to about 35 guys in Quonset huts and, <laughs> and they gave us some food and we got on the helicopters and flew back, you know, wow. <laughs> but it was really fun. And uh, I met a lot of great players and I got very inspired in practicing and learning and put my shit together, my chops, mm -hmm. you know, I also play other instruments. I played, I was drummer in the band. Hmm. I, I was a trumpet player in the big band and I was the drummer in a combo. And uh, I started increasing my skills on the piano and in the service and writing. I took some mail order courses from Berkeley School of Music, even in theory and harmony <laughs> and stuff. And uh, I practiced a lot, you know, and uh, we, were, we were stationed in Colorado Springs. There wasn't much there, but we could go up to Denver when we were not on the road. Mm -hmm. and, we, we, I heard Dizzy up in Denver and Stan Getz and a lot of people in a club up there. Uh, so uh, the band box, it was called. Anyway, the service was good for me because that, uh, it gave me a, a sense of, well, uh, you know, I've, I never thought I would have a career in music. But when I was, when the Colonel told me, you know, the Dorsey band is looking for a trumpet player. Why don't you go over to the Americana tonight and audition? I went, me? <laughs> What, me? He says, well, you don't know. Get over there and audition. And it was led by Sam Donahue, who was one of my band directors at the Kenton Clinics <laughs> one of the years, you know. So Sam knew who I was. He says, oh, yeah, send that kid over here. Mm -hmm. So he knew I could play. I mean, he, he thought highly of my playing anyway. So, so I was, sat up and played, and they got the gig, and that's where I got out. Was but, that the solo book or lead? What, what was? No, uh, no, it was a solo book. Yeah, mm -hmm. I wasn't a lead player in those days at all. Mm-hmm. I mean, I could play an occasional chart to, to give a spell a guy for a rest, but mm -hmm. I wasn't a lead player. I didn't have those kind of chops at all. But um, it was like cool. And then after being on the Dorsey band for a little while, um, I got on, uh, Bill Chase called me to come on Woody's band at Phil, Phil Wilson's recommendation. Mm -hmm. And then from, from there, I went on the road touring, playing lead for Della Reese and... Uh, mm -hmm. And from there uh, to Benny Goodman's band, then from Cy Zender's band, and then Maynard's band a couple of times, <laughs> Buddy Rich's band. What yeah. was that one like, Buddy Rich? Well, that's the high point of my life as far as big bands, you know. I mean, there have mm. been some other great ones, you know. I loved playing on Louis Belson's band. I loved playing on Terry Gibbs' band. And I loved the, the workload on Toshiko's band was astronomical. It's one of the hardest lead trumpet books ever written. And, uh, but Buddy's band, you know, Buddy was such a character and he was a pain in the ass to work for at times because <laughs> his, he was, I think, 
we don't we didn't know the term back in those days, but I think he was bipolar. You know? No, I I think Bud because because Buddy could fly off of the handle like just the, the drop of a hat. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, for no reason at all. And I you know I talked to his wife a great deal, Marie, and she's still alive. I think she lives down in Indian Wells, California, down by Palm Springs. But she was really good friends with my my, my wife who. Marie and my wife were good friends before I met my wife. <laughs> my wife knew Buddy Rich before I knew her. Oh, that's her. funny. <laughs> well, see, my wife was a dancer in Vegas, and, and uh, Buddy was on Harry James' band. And so the, mm-hmm. my wife's dance show used to alternate with Harry's band. And so Buddy would be backstage, and then Marie would be around. And, and so it was pretty, a pretty tight connection. Mm-hmm. So my point was that uh, we talked a lot um, to uh, – Marie about Buddy's upbringing and there's some horrible stories about his way his parents treated him and they never once told him they loved him they never hugged him nothing like that you know mm-hmm. and uh, so Buddy grew up in pretty much in need of of things he was quite insecure I mean he was very but he had this temper thing that it just blow up and it was just like you know, I, I got to tell you a funny story. It's one of the, it's the greatest compliment I've had in my entire career. After I left the Buddies band, I was there 21 months. And I got fired 20, 22 times and, and rehired 21 times. <laughs> it's, true. it's true. He'd say, get the hell off my band. You're, you're out of here. And I'd go to my hotel room and then the phone would ring. He'd say, true, buddy. I say, yeah. Uh, what's up? He said, you're not going to really leave, are you? I said, well, I don't want to leave. He says, all right, I'll see you on the bus tomorrow. You know? And, you know, but he would just, we, I faced up to him. You know, I argued with him a lot. I said, I told him, why don't you just play the drums and leave the music to us? And, Whoa, that, he didn't want to hear that. <laughs> but, but You may uh, be the only person to have ever done that and survived, right? <laughs> maybe. Well, there's other people who have stood up to him. I know, uh, some, but anyway, what happened is uh, uh, Marie and my wife Lisa and I used to get together and we go to shows or something and so forth. We got a great photograph of the three of us together. Mm-hmm. But you know, Marie would Buddy's band would be at home. He'd be there, and she'd she'd go and she'd say, "Oh, by the way, I saw Bobby and Lisa shoot today," and they said to say hello to you. And he'd say, "Bobby's shoe," you know. She'd say, why do you hate him so much? He says, because I've never been able to replace that son of a bitch. You know? <laughs> Wasn't that a nice? When she said that to me, I thought, That's, I couldn't get a higher compliment. Wow. You know? Wow. And Buddy fought for a lot, a lot of lead players trying to, he knew that I played the drums. That was the thing. And see, that helped because I could read what he was doing mm-hmm. better than, somebody who was just trying to listen to a ride cymbal or a hi-hat. I mean, I was kind of more in his head, you know, and he knew mm-hmm. it. Yeah. Well, 21 months seems like uh, the, the longest anybody may have survived on that band in that, that? spot. 21 months. I mean, you, you said you stayed on that band for 21 months. No, I think there were other guys that stayed longer than me. Mm-hmm. I think Marcus was there probably longer than me. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not sure. I don't know. I don't, I stayed in touch with the band for years and I provided, and once I got more into teaching, I started sending students there on the band. Eric Miyashiro was one of my students. Mm. Greg Gisbert was one of my students. Mm. 
Kevin Richards, a lot of these guys had studied with me and I'd put them out there on the band, you know, and, you know, Greg Gisbert came up and knocked on the bus door. I was in there talking to Buddy and and this Greg walks in there, you know what he looks like. He's like Porky Pig, you know, a little shorty guy. And he, I said, come in. Buddy says, who the hell is this? I said, he's your next jazz trumpet player. You know, he says, what are you telling? Are you tell you trying to run my band? Buddy, I always ran your band. <laughs> <laughs> you thought you ran it, but I always ran it. Yeah. I just, you know, I used to terrorize him a little bit, but, you know, it was sad to lose him. I you know, I provided him with an awful lot of players for years and, mm-hmm. and stuff, you know, and, uh, and in some ways I, I loved playing with him. It was like the greatest education in the world because he, his, my, my lead trumpet part was in his hands. Mm-hmm. I just listened to him. He told me how to play lead. If you, you follow what I mean, it was right exactly. there on the drums. And he screwed up a lot of lead players because they tried to count bars, you know, but I was listening to the lines he played. And he would ought to take a four-bar break, and he would change the tempo in the break. If you weren't listening to his lines, you were going to screw up when you came back in again. Mm-hmm. You know, and so uh, he did, he caught me one time, and it's on a record. It's on the record, the live with Sammy Davis Jr. Mm-hmm. Uh, the '66 album, and come back to me. And there's a uh, and a, after the band plays, Buddy has like a little break in the turnaround before it goes back to the bridge, and. He played something. Blah, 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 blah. I went, what the hell? And I missed the entrance. Never again. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he caught me one time. That's all. I, yeah. You know. But I love playing with him. He was astonishing, man. I mean, there's no. I mean, I'm not telling you anything. You don't know. He's there's only one of him. And he's the world's greatest drummer, without a doubt. Yeah. You know, but uh, boy. A challenge to work with you know and but you 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 want to be there but you don't want to be there but you got to be there you know and mm-hmm. you have to tolerate it and put up with an awful lot of bullshit to be on the stand with that guy but you're on the stand with buddy rich to deal with it mm-hmm. you know not everybody gets that opportunity right that's right you you got boy you know that and you know i've done all kinds of buddy tributes over the years too and uh all those videos that came out of the annual things I did the first ones of those. And, and, you know, I've sat and discussed buddy rich with everybody from Peter Erskine to, to, you know, to whoever doesn't matter, you know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. everybody wants to know about him. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I don't know, I didn't know everything about him, but his, his daughter's all over my ass. She tried to sue me for producing uh, a tribute to her father. And it turned out that all she wanted was me to pay her a fee to use his name, but she doesn't own his name. She doesn't have, she mm-hmm, does not have mm-hmm, it. It's mm-hmm. not. And so anyway, I, I am not going to do any more buddy tributes. <laughs> gotcha. Well, here we are in the middle of today's interview. Just a reminder that support for this podcast comes from Messina Covers, who has you covered literally for all of your custom case needs. The Eastman Music Company, providing excellence from the professional model to the beginner model. And of course, Pickett Blackburn, providing you with a multitude of options for mouthpieces and trumpets. Now, back to the interview. So uh, you had mentioned uh, these people that had studied with you. You know, When did you figure out that you could teach and you knew what to say? Well, it was a, it was a gradual thing. You know, people... <clears throat> 
I would say the first one that really comes to mind is there was a kid here in, in Albuquerque uh, who showed a hell of a lot of promise, really, you know. And they asked me to come up here and do a little summer camp, a week-long summer camp up near Santa Fe. And uh, so he was, in, he was there in attendance at that. And so I, he started asking me questions about warming up and this and that and keep strengthening and whatever. And I was shooting from the hip a lot, but I had some ideas, you know, and, uh, but what I, I think the one thing that was salvation for me is that when a student, <clears throat> quite often when a student asks the teacher, how do I do this? The teacher will throw out a piece of information that's false. It may be just an opinion that has no factual foundation, you know, if, if a lot of, unfortunately, I'll, I'll say this, but with caution, but I, because I'm not really here to piss anybody off, but <clears throat> I've been involved with ITG and way before it was ITG when it was the mm -hmm. trumpet symposium in Denver and all that. And I've been around trumpet teachers and trumpet players and talked to everybody from Bill Chase to whoever who studied with so-and-so and who do mm -hmm. study with and who do study with. And I've met a lot of the teachers in New York, whether it be Ray Crisara or whoever you know and with respect i would say that a lot of what's passed on in pedagogy is opinions and when i in 1974 maynard ferguson gave me a book called the science of breath which is a yoga breathing mm -hmm. book very famous book by now and mm -hmm. uh, so i t looked at that book i read it a couple of times i went what? And then I was on a I was on a rock and roll record date in Hollywood at Yucca Studios, and the other trumpet player was Bud Brisboy. Mm -hmm. And so Bud saw that book in my case, and he said, "What are you doing with that book?" And I said, "Well, Maynard gave it to me." I said, "I don't get it." He said, "That's the answer to everything." And I said, "But I read a book twice. I don't see any double C's in there, you know." And uh, he says, "Oh, I can show you that." He says, "It's the same thing I do." And so on that session, they said, horns out of the room, we're going to put strings on. So we went down the hallway and stood by the Coke machine and Bud took that book and he showed me how to lift my shoulders and ex use the horror point down in the, in the umbilical area as a form of support. What it did, I, it was like so confusing at first. I said, geez, this goes against what they say. He says, yeah, you got to watch out what they say, you know. And that's the whole point is, I, I had a doctor studying with me at the at the time, and I was suddenly ten days later playing double C's. I went, "Holy crap! What happened here?" You know, and I asked the doctor. I said, "Can you explain the respiratory system to me? What's going on? How does this work?" He gave me a book, <coughs> an anatomy book. He said, "Read this." What? The whole thing. <laughs> And so I started studying uh, medicines uh, 46 years ago. And if wow. you could look around here, it's neuroscience and everything. The, there's anatomy books, the human body, complete user's guide, everything. The whole house looks like a medical library. <laughs> so I started studying uh, the science of physiology and anatomy. And then right at that same time, 46 years ago, in 1974, I was when I was uh, recruited by Yamaha to design instruments for them and stuff like that, you know? 
they were just getting into the band and orchestra division stuff. They'd mm -hmm. been successful with keyboards and electronics and drums and stuff, but had not really made any headroads into band and orchestra. So I got in tied up with Yamaha and uh, that prior to that, I had been hanging with a guy by the name of Larry Frank, who used to design instruments for Binge. Mm -hmm. And Larry was a really great technician and he's taught me so much about the physics of instruments and metallurgy and things like that. And once you start getting with science, everything starts to make sense. And plus you start getting predictable results. And that's one of the great things about science is that it enables you as a teacher to, you can pass off an opinion, but you better not try to convince a guy that it's a fact. Mm. You know, I do have opinions, but I always precede any statement. I said, now this is my opinion. It's not a fact. I always tell them that. Because I'm, that's my whole, uh, the whole program that I'm trying to do as a, as a so-called teacher now, mm -hmm. is that uh, I'm separating fact from opinion. You know, I don't mind if people have opinions, but it, you know, it isn't that you'll play better if it's a Bach. That's bull. <laughs> it's that's just an opinion. <laughs> right. Yeah. You know, you know, and you don't have to play that mouthpiece. You can play whatever mouthpiece you want to play but you have to understand the science of what is a mouthpiece. It's a transduction unit. It's taking an energy level and it's reading it. And if it can read it and send it on without changing it, it'll work for you. If it mm -hmm. alters your velocity level of your airstream, it's going to mess you up. <laughs> so anytime you start playing, having any of the fundamental things about the science attributes, if one of the, any of those things are gone or weak, you're going to, it's going to reflect in your play. Mm -hmm. And so I, through lots and lots and lots of reading, lots of research, lots of trial and error, I started, I gave a lesson to this kid in 1968, uh, a kid from Albuquerque here, and I helped him out. And he became a monster, monster player. He was out on the road with Clark Terry's band playing all over the place. He's mm -hmm. done some albums and everything. He's a really fine player. I, I started realizing that, that there was a science. See, when the science came in there, I found, I found stability in my teaching. And rather than just throw out a whole bunch of gobbledygook opinions to people, I work with, I've even designed a warm-up that's extremely efficient. It's very logical and plus it's very scientific. Mm -hmm. And if it's done exactly right, and it's not done exactly right based on just my feelings. It's the first thing I have a student become aware, is aware of him, his own body. You know, what, what do your lips feel like? I can't be inside of your lips. I don't know what they feel like, mm -hmm. but you have to become aware of it so that you find, first of all, what's stable for you. And then if you have that, that's, it's a, that's a target on a daily basis that you strive for a particular desired feeling in your lips. Mm -hmm. And if you can do that on a daily basis, you, the stability becomes consistency. And you, don't, you eliminate all of those troubled areas of bad day, good day, mm -hmm. roller coaster rides. And, uh, and the breathing, yoga breathing is critical because it's, it is the it's how you can maximize your air capacity. It's how you have the most easiest way to control movement, the velocity, the compression, and therefore velocity of your airstream. <clears throat> and then, you, so 
you know, you come, it, plus the fact that it enables you to play whole body rather than just the person who doesn't use good abdominal support in his breathing is going to play from his face. Mm -hmm. right. And then just pinch, press, and pray. You know, those are the three Ps. <laughs> pinch, press, and pray. You see a lot of them. And then we come to the third fundamental of the thing is aperture control. That's the drop to jaw. And the jaw is the only tool that you can use. Now, some people say tongue, but the tongue and the jaw are connected. If you don't believe me, just just put, just put your finger on your chin and read the alphabet. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. Every, every right. phonetic thing that you change in your mouth, your jaw and tongue work together. They're connected actually back here, if you look at an anatomy. Mm -hmm. And so it's the jaw that controls the gap between the top and the bottom lip. And so the gap, the aperture size is based on two items only, the register that you're in and the dynamic that you're playing. If you're in the low register, you're going to have uh, a large aperture, higher register, you're going to have a smaller one and everything in between. So that's an adjustable thing. If you're playing loud, you're going to have a larger aperture and softer, you're going to have a smaller aperture mm -hmm. and everything in between. So once you understand that simplistic thing, what? <laughs> oh, that's all I have to do is, mm -hmm. is make an adjustment with my jaw. And yes, because what happens is there you, <clears throat> you are able to what we call slot a note, center a note. Mm -hmm. You maximize the overtones in the note. And you don't know that over, the overtones are there until they're not there. You can really sense and feel them and hear them and everything else. And then the fourth fundamental is that you're playing on the, the correct mouthpiece for the type of playing that you're doing. Not just something that, you know, Claude Gordon used to make all of his students play on a CG bench trumpet and a, and a Claude Gordon mouthpiece. You know, like, but that's like saying everybody, if, if you love basketball, you should go out and buy Kareem Abdul-Jabbar's shoes. Well, it's a size 23, for Christ's sake. You're right. not going to wear those, you know. <laughs> no. You can't You can't just go around and play on a Maynard Ferguson mouthpiece and expect to sound like him or anything like that. It doesn't work that way. Well, I think a lot of us have figured that out over the years, that, you know, there's no holy grail. There's no quick fix on that. So, you know, with the, with the, the yoga breath, uh, it's also referred to as the wedge breath. Is that right? right? Well, I called it the wedge breath because the second step of the breath, you're pulling your belly, umbilical area, inward towards the spine. Now, I asked Maynard, what do you think of it? He says, I try to make my belly button kiss my spine. Only Maynard would say something like that, but it is true. Mm -hmm. So that on, in the umbilical area on the second step of the breath, you're pulling it backwards towards your spine. And what you're doing is you're pulling the abdominal muscles underneath the diaphragm up here. Mm -hmm. you know mm -hmm. so that they're underneath the diaphragm and they can employ muscular of what they call rib excursion which is how many ribs as the diaphragm moves up the ribs are here and the diaphragm goes past them that's excur called excursion mm -hmm. three rib or four rib or five rib excursion and that's you know how people control the movement of their air mm -hmm. so you have to learn to do everything at you know, uh, well, I call it five volumes, five dynamics. I don't like all the M's, F's, and P's because how in the hell do you adjust muscles to M's? What's the difference between one P and two P's or an MP? It, it just says S for soft, you know? <laughs> and instead of using your eye to adjust a muscle, you use your ear around you. Sure. You know, 
Like, were you playing in a concert band, a marching band? Or what's a pianism on a marching, on a, on a halftime show? <laughs> You're probably not such a thing, you know? Right, right. But, uh, so I, I call them five dynamics, you know, like the middle finger, I just call it an M for medium, mezzo forte, mm -hmm. you call it. And the fourth finger down here is S for soft. And this is L for loud. And this is, this fourth, the fifth finger down here is TS for too soft. And then the thumb is TFL. I know exactly where, go ahead. So when you leave, <laughs> when you leave loud, when you leave loud here, you go in here, you're in noise. Too friggin' loud. So, you know, I have heard some people say, oh yeah, compression, uh, the wedge breath, I use that, but only for commercial playing. You know, I don't, I wouldn't do that but you're you're advocating for using it all the time. All the time. I've had classical players that poo-pooed me for teaching it at the ITG things, you know. And uh, one of my, I have somewhere in my, my scrapbooks, I have folders of scrapbooks been collected for years. But I have a letter from, uh, a card actually from Armando Guitala. And in 1980, I gave a, a clinic in uh, Columbus, Ohio or an ITG conference. And that's where I first I gave a lecture on the wedge breath, you know. Mm -hmm. Gitala had just signed up with Yamaha a few months before that. So he and I got a chance to dine together with Bob Malone and well, no, it was even before Bob Malone was with Yamaha, uh, but a couple of the other dealers. And so anyway, Gitala heard my clinic and uh, so that was that. Six or seven weeks later, I got a card from him. And he said, it was nice to meet you and dine with you and so forth. And uh, he says, and I must say, thank you very much for that yoga breath clinic. He says, I've been trying to get it. And he says, I've just recently started hitting my first ever double season. So I thank you very much. Wow. And then he started sending students from me. He was teaching in Ann Arbor, Michigan, at the University of Michigan. He started sending me his trumpet students. He said, get out to L.A. and get a lesson with Bobby on this thing. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Lots and lots of teachers. They, they became a controversial breath for a lot of years. And a lot of teachers uh, who poo-pooed it in interviews and everything, they said, oh, he's going to screw up everybody with this. And then one of them in particular, I won't mention his name here, but um, he was teaching at an Iowa school. And he, um, he, he even scheduled, while I was there on campus, he scheduled trumpet uh, ensemble rehearsals during my clinic to make sure that none of the kids attended. Wow. This is an evil bastard, you know. He was very, very insecure about his. He wanted to be the guy. He wanted to be like the, the preacher of everything, you know. And and he didn't want kids listening to something other than what his was. That was Claude Gordon's whole thing too. He didn't want you listening to anybody else's opinion about anything. Mm -hmm. So anyway. Um, that guy later on, two of his students came to LA in spite of him and took lessons with me. And they came back and they had added a, at least a fifth or a sixth to their range. And they were also playing with much greater ease and better sound and mm -hmm. the whole thing. So it, finally it caught his curiosity and he came out and took a lesson with me. And that once I explained everything to him, and which is really the pro problem with a lot of people. They don't really know exactly what it is. 
until they get it from the horse's mouth, so to mm-hmm. speak. And once I explained the thing to to John, he he apologized. He said, God, I had no idea. He says, I was completely wrong about this. And he actually mm-hmm. even went into print online and said something about that. He says, mm-hmm. all of you, I was totally wrong. And he said something wow. positive about it. He says, you, <laughs> this is a definite worthwhile breathing method. And it's really just based on the respiratory system. It's called, you know, it's called forced exhalation. And, you know, <clears throat> it's not the same as what we're doing when we're sitting here like now or watching TV. You know? mm-hmm. But when you blow out candles on a birthday cake, it's forced exhalation. Mm-hmm. And if, if you learn to do it from down there, you won't do it from here. That'll free up this whole thing to function more mechanically mm-hmm. instead of having to print mouth squeeze your lips together and press the mouthpiece up against your teeth you know mm-hmm. so it's uh science is a wonderful thing larry and it's i mean i i feel blessed that i'm um and fortunate that i really got put onto this by that doctor and yeah and i'm still in touch with that doctor his name is his name is david blask b-l-a-s-k mm-hmm. and he's uh uh, cancer research specialist and teaches he's on residence at Tulane in New Orleans and uh, he's saved several of my friends as a matter of fact he's Wayne Bergeron has a cancer thing right now right and David is working with Wayne oh that's terrific I, I got I got I spoke to Wayne and I put him in touch with David so there we've got him on some immune system supplements lysine and echinacea and mm-hmm. melatonin and things of that sort you know vitamin c and minerals and because you need to boost the immune system as maximum yeah so like yeah. You know, i mean i'm studying a hell of a lot of medicine man. i mean i'm not a doc well i do have a doctorate but it's not medicine it should be because <laughs> a doctorate in music is useless <laughs> how can you do with that you know but, you know uh roger ingram came down to uh, Indianapolis uh, a few years back and I had him do a master class. And uh, of course he talked about the wedge breath and then I had a lesson with him afterwards and it was, it was, well, I wouldn't say life changing, but it was certainly eye opening. And, you know, then I started to, to really practice this and I'm, I'm not sure I'm doing it a hundred percent the right way yet, but I can see the benefits you know, when I really focus on it, it, it gets the job done. But I, I, I have a hard time reconciling that with, you know, playing the soft, the soft stuff. But, you know, I'm, I'm going to take your advice and I'm going to start seeing, you know, trying to implement that in my own playing. Well, here's the whole point about it is that, you know, uh, if you can distribute the workload properly throughout your body, you can gain what's called maximum efficiency. And efficiency is one of the goals in, in anything, whether it's golf or tennis or mm-hmm. I don't care what, throwing a football, you know, you, you have to learn all the, where, where is the science in this? Sure, there's the humanity. The science, is, the science is not necessarily the solo that you're gonna play on a tune. That's a lot more based on your, your uh, emotions you know, more than anything, mm-hmm. um, your imagination, things of that, that, but imagination, these are all creative things. But the science is more left-brained. It's really more mechanical. Mm-hmm. 
But if the mechanics are not right, it's like if Picasso or Michelangelo tried to paint a <laughs> picture and they don't know how to mix colors or how to use a brush or clean a brush or mm -hmm. a palette knife, you're not going to get like the Sistine Chapel or anything like that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you get mm -hmm. Garbage, you know. And one of my whole uh, goals with what I do as a teacher is uh, I really would like in my own little way to to, to lay out a good foundation for, for people so that they get started properly and, and you don't get pushed down some strange road of, you know, blah, 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 mm -hmm. you know? and uh, I have, uh, I have uh, a, a student now who just turned 13 and I played a concert in California last fall, November. His parents brought him to hear me and he had just been on the horn about six weeks or eight weeks or something then. And he heard me play and you know, all the double C's and all that stuff, you know. And, and then he brought him to a clinic of mine too. And uh, well, that was it. I didn't know him. I didn't meet him or anything. But somewhere around March, end of February, March, his mom emailed me. She found my email on a website. Mm -hmm. And uh, she asked me if I would give him a lesson. I said, well, I don't really do students, like young beginners, you know. She said, well, she said he was very interested in like, as you talked about it, the clinic, he didn't, we didn't grasp anything and there was no handouts or anything, mm -hmm. but if you could, and I said, well, you know what, let me do this. I'll do an hour with him. And let me just lay out all the foundation of fluttering, lip buzzing, the breathing thing, mouthpiece buzzing, all of the things that really are going to set him up really correctly. Mm -hmm. And uh, so she bought an hour and the kid's bright. He's very shy, but he's bright. He assimilates quickly. Mm -hmm. And so I got him in there. I got him fluttering and <laughs> like this, using his palm. And so he's isolating one cheek at a time mm -hmm. rather than most people just go, <laughs> you do a lip buzz. They're not getting any blood out here. You know, so mm. that I got him on that. I got him lip buzzing like <laughs> that for isometrics for toning up the muscles out here. Mm -hmm. Mouthpiece buzzing because the mouthpiece is the trumpet, and the trumpet is an amplifi amplification unit for the mouthpiece. So I got him uh, working on these things, and he made some pretty good progress in about I don't know a month or so. Mm -hmm. Then the next thing I know is mom buys $200 worth of lessons again. And I said, well, wait a second. You know, first of all, I don't want him to rely on me. Mm. That's the worst thing I can do to that kid is make him depend upon me. And I want to teach him how to think mm. and solve his own problems, be aware of things. So I said, what I'll do, I'll take the two hours that you bought and we'll do them in four half hour spot checks. And we'll do them about every two weeks. Just keep an eye on it, make sure he's doing everything right. Mm -hmm. And so in the meantime, I talked during these, these lessons, I asked the kid if he's listening to any jazz records. Yeah, a little bit, you know, wants to improvise. So I showed him a little bit of idiokinetics. Mm -hmm. Playing the scales and stuff by da 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 da
sing it, finger it on the horn, and then play it. And he's doing it. And so uh, in one of his early lessons, I had him play a little solo. Well, not bad for a kid, a beginner, like, you know, a few weeks later. And I sent him um, two compilation CDs of Chet Baker. And I sent those out to him to listen to. I said, just, and if you hear a little lick that you like, try to write it down or, or sing it and play it and stuff like mm -hmm. that. Start stealing licks, you know, <laughs> transcription. So I'm opening up his ears and sense of rhythm and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And so on the kid's fourth lesson, uh, he was playing up to high D. <laughs> Can you imagine? No, I can't because I couldn't play D in the staff uh, for a long time. Oh, well, wow. he's, he's on it. And I've showed him air pivoting too, a little bit of, changing the airstream inside of the cup. Mm -hmm. you know, so he's aware of the, of the sciences that underlie what playing. Mm -hmm. You know, Doc Severinsen, when he took a lesson with me about two and a half years ago, uh, he had been snapping at me because he and I and Vizzuti did a concert together and, and I kept hitting this high B every time and Doc said, how the hell do you do that? And I said, screw you, I'm not showing you. you know. <laughs> <laughs> but Doc took a, took a lesson with me and uh, I told him it was about air pivoting. He says, what do you mean air pivoting? He didn't know what it was. I says, doc, you're already doing it. You couldn't play without it. And so in the lesson, I showed it to him and I showed him how to flutter better and lip buzz better and some things like that. And, and, uh, and Kathy said he went right down into the basement for about two and a half hours and worked on all the stuff he got from the lesson, you know. But the thing about it, when you put the science out to these guys, uh, they, they always say like, geez, why didn't somebody tell me about that? Or why, why am I, I've been playing the trumpet for 30 years and now I'm finding out this, why? I says, you know, I can't help tell you. I don't know, it's been, Costello wrote a book on it in 1932. Where is it now? It's probably out of print. I can send it to, send it. it's a small book. Like, mm -hmm. I can send it in a PDF file, but it talks about air pivoting, you know, mm -hmm. you cannot play without it. It's impossible. It's not an option. You, you can't. And people, there's two kinds of pivoting, internal and external people who have, have, I don't have an overbite. My teeth are crooked as hell. You look like a bag of Southwest peanuts. <laughs> so did Al Persino's. But the thing about it is I don't have an overbite. So when I, when I play, the horn doesn't move, you know? Watch I'm like, I'm really warmed up. Yeah. <laughs> the horn doesn't move. I do it all with my jaw. Mm -hmm. Now a person who has an overbite where those top teeth are out in front, far yeah. enough, they can't push their jaw forward without causing a TMJ problem back here. Mm -hmm. So what you do in that case is you tilt the horn down. Right. When you tilt the horn down, you're still affecting the airstream into the into the various mm -hmm. places. So the external pivoting is here, internal is done with the jaw. Mm -hmm. And when I, you know, when, when we teach somebody, we have to know what's the old. There's an old Hebraic saying: "Know before whom you stand." Mm -hmm. <laughs> and if you can't just assume that every kid that comes and sits in that chair and takes a lesson with you. It's got the same dental thing, same thickness of lips, same this, 
same goals even, mm-hmm. you know? And you have to, as, well, one of the reasons psychology is such an important part of my studies is that you're 90% psychologist when you teach and 10% technician, you know? <laughs> it's like the science of the body, anatomy and physics and stuff like that's easy enough. But you've got to deal with the guy's mind and his, his sense of how he thinks about himself. And, you know, the four fundamentals that I teach uh, there, uh, feeling the lips, abdominal support, aperture control, and mouthpiece selection, those, if you have a problem with your playing, it's probably on that page somewhere, mm-hmm. you know? And sequentially, too. You don't look at it mouthpiece first. Mm-hmm got everything that precedes the mouthpiece the mouthpiece if you use the wrong mouthpiece it'll destroy all the other things that precede it mm-hmm. but if the things that precede the mouthpiece the mouthpiece ain't going to cover bad breathing or bad warm-up or right or aperture control is not going to happen so uh the thing about it is i like to to get to know everything i can possibly know about the student ask him what he wants to do and how does mm-hmm. he is he have fun and is he under pressure and does he worry about, you know, I think one of my pet peeves that you may or may not know this, but the biggest complaint I have about music education is the fact that they, they put a falsehood in there by introducing uh, students to issue of right and wrong, a mistake, a misnote. And a, a misnote is not a problem. It is, there's a reason for it. And if it's on that page, if it's physical, it's on that page. It's either you didn't get a good warm up, you didn't, you're not buzzing enough, your muscles are not strong enough, your you know, aperture's out of control, something prong. But if if it's not on that page, it's your attitude. Mm-hmm. Person who lives in constant fear of right and wrong is living he's he's in the wrong part of his brain. He's in the amygdala of the the lobes in his brain. Mm-hmm. And the amygdala is where all the fear factor stuff is, mm-hmm. you know. And when you are in that, if you're dominant in the amygdala part of the brain, you're far away from where the music is. Mm-hmm. You know, your emotions and the things that are and the creative juices and everything that can come out of you and turn you into a good musician are not even being activated. Mm-hmm. So we we do a great disservice to students by right right note wrong note thing you know i you know i mean we're not we're humans we err you know and we're not perfect and to strive for the the last let me show you something here this is this is not a method book this is my a basic study guide hmm. okay. and i want to show you the last page of it Can you read that? The pursuit of excellence is gratifying and healthy. The pursuit of perfection is frustrating, neurotic, and a terrible waste of time. <laughs> yeah. You know what? That's very true. And I, I didn't invent that. I stole that from a philosopher. But it's, you know, I, <clears throat> when I miss things, I say, oh, great. Now let's see, why did I miss it? Let's just check. Here's the checklist. Mm-hmm. Yeah, what about my warm up? What about the, if I can go through the checklist? If, if it was no, no, the warm up. Oh, was the breathing? Oh, yeah. Well, no, the breathe. Oh, it's oh shit. I wasn't thinking about aperture. Oh, I wasn't thinking about air pivot. Oh, no wonder. Then I can go back and do it. 
and solve it with the making the correction, finding the out point, I can solve the problem. And then once I've solved the problem, you think, oh, I got it, I got it. No, you don't have it. You just figured out how to reprogram it. Mm-hmm. Now we enter into the field of neuroscience and we're talking about neuroplasticity. And neuroplasticity is a process whereby you access some of the dormant neurons that are available in the brain, which is about 80% of the brain, mm-hmm. really, the average person. And you, once you've figured out that it was a certain tilt of this air stream or something about the wedge or something about whatever, once you figure out the solution, and it might entail two or three items in the solution, but once you know exactly how to make the correction and the shit that you're trying to play comes out right, the way you want it, now you need repetition. And that's what neuroplasticity is. So you have to run through drills. You have to do this three or four times a day for anywhere from six to 10 minutes. It's not asking a lot. But what happens is over a period of time, the old habit where you played incorrectly and squeezed and pinched, it's gonna, you can't make it go away, but you can replace it with something that's much more dominant. And when you do the repetitions, the neurons that are in the brain that are coming down into the muscle, and that's sending the muscle, that's how the muscle knows what to do. It's being shown through uh, motions. Mm-hmm. You know? And once you, uh, once you send those programs down to the, to the muscles repetitively, the, the neuron builds up what's called uh, myelin, which is a substance that builds up on the axons and dendrites and so forth. And it gets thicker and thicker like an insulation on a wire. And once it gets that thick, it dominates. And that old habit is not, it goes to sleep and it's not <laughs> to be seen again. Mm-hmm. And you can change embouchures. I can change embouchures quick with that. I can change whole ways of people playing, put the way they approach the setting on their chops, the whole thing, even the way they hold the horn. But and sometimes you, you see guys have been shown to do things certain ways, you know, like the DCI programs, for instance. They got to hold the horns up and point them at the clouds, you know, when right. they're marching. Well, that creates trachea problems and it creates pinches and nerves at the base of the skull back there called a reticular formation, which can cause numbness in your fingers and, and affect your respiratory system. So, you see, the advantage of studying medicine is that I'm not guessing. Yeah, but you know, I hear you, and I think you still got the architectural aspect into your life. You know, oh, you may have, but I mean, you think about everything you're talking about, and it's the the structure, and finding, you know, like uh, uh, was it Frank Lloyd Wright? You know, finding the right way to shine light in, in into certain spaces. And I think that I, I'm looking looking at this as you still got that even though you left, you know, you left studying that, this is still a, a, a way to, to, to build people, rebuild people. Well, I, you know, I just like, I just think we all deserve a fair shot at being able to experience the, the maximum benefits and the joyful things about being a musician. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, uh, well, if anything, you know, I, I was going to ask you a few minutes ago, and then I thought, no, he's already answered this question, because I was going to ask, do you really get a lot of joy out of teaching? I do. Well, I mean, that's obvious. You know, everything you've just gone through, I'm sitting here and thinking, 
nobody who uh, felt like they were, uh, this was just, uh, you know, exhausting. I have to do this again today. I mean, that is, you know, what'd you say? You're 79 years old. Yeah, I'll be 80 actually. And, and you're still, I mean, the joy, the excitement that comes through in, in this conversation is just, well, it's inspiring. You know, here I am 54 and thinking, you know, oh, I'm hoping, and I'm seriously thinking, uh, we're going to have to set up some lessons for me uh, after this, because <laughs> I think it's not too late. If Doc can come to you uh, for a lesson, I think I could probably come to you and, and learn something too. When he signed up, I thought, what am I going to possibly teach Doc? Hey, wait, wait, are you, are you serious? He actually signed up? Yeah, well, Kathy told him, she, she and I did a, um, we, uh, did a workshop together in a school in Abilene, Texas or someplace like that. Uh-huh. And uh, she saw my master class where I explained all the fundamentals and stuff like this. And she went home to doc and she said, God, you're going to, you're not going to believe what Bobby knows about the body and everything. Yeah. And I've known doc since I was 16 years old, mm-hmm. you know, and we've, he, when I was very young and first in New York around those days when I was just out of high school, he had given me his phone number, said, if you get to New York someday, call me. And I did. And he took me to sessions, bought me lunches, introduced me to Bernie Glow and all these guys, you know. I mean, shit, I was in shit heaven, you know, with Doc. <laughs> right around. This was before he was really, he was playing in the trumpet section of the Tonight Show band. This when, when Skitch ran the band, you know. Mm-hmm. It was Doc and Bob McCoy and uh, Jimmy Maxwell. Uh, Snooky was in there. Mm-hmm. But anyway, the, the thing about it, uh, Larry, is that uh, I had a friend by the name of Maurice Varnado, who was a band director in uh, Lafayette, Louisiana. <clears throat> and somewhere around 1968 or so, he brought me in as a guest artist. And I was just starting to get into being a, a doing solo performances with school bands back around that time. And um, uh, Maurice, uh, he gave me a transcript of of a a lecture by Gustav Holst given at Yale University. And I've searched all over for the full transcript of that lecture and I cannot find it anywhere. I've typed in everything in Google and whatever. It was in a book, but he photocopied the copies of the pages in the book and I have that. But to paraphrase, there's a lot Gustav said very intelligent. But the one thing that hit me and slapped me like in the face, Gustav said, anybody who achieves any degree of uh, success in the arts, especially in the field of music, owes it to the next generation to do a 180 degree turnaround and show people how you've managed to succeed. And he said, to not do so is a crime of omission. And I went, crime of omission? I wouldn't want to be be guilty of that, you know. (laughs) It's like, what if a little old lady needs help across the street? I was a good Boy Scout. Help this lady, you know. Mm -hmm. I learned an awful lot of good concepts about helping people, you know, being ethical and being responsible and Mm -hmm. not not passing up. How can you you not help somebody? (laughs) For crying out loud. How can you not do that? Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, so... I've taken that, that's added a very, uh, I would hate to use the word serious quality to my teaching because serious 
the other thing that you must know about me is, uh, is I am probably, I'm very OCD on the subject of etymology and language and, and mm -hmm. so forth. If I look up here, I've got how many? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, dictionaries right on the line here. Mm -hmm. Some of them are English and some of them are Spanish and some of them are seven language dictionaries. And, and I collect dictionaries. I have about 160 of them. <laughs> almost every language on the planet. Almost. Mm -hmm. Wow. And so the word, I, my when I was a kid learning to play jazz and everything, I had band directors to tell me, you're not a serious musician. You've got to get more serious about your playing and stuff like that. You're just having fun out here, you know. You're going to have to be a serious musician. Well, every time somebody used that word serious, I felt like I was getting spanked. <laughs> you know, I thought, God, that's an ugly word. And seriously, this is a serious situation. Oh, oh. you know, grimacing. And so I looked up in an etymology book one time, I looked up the word serious. And, and this, I have a copy of the 1828 Webster Dictionary. <clears throat> it was first published in the United States in 1828. I have a copy mm -hmm. of it. Mm -hmm. And uh, I looked up the word serious in there. And it says grave, somber, concerned. Well, that's what serious means. I've got to be more serious, more concerned, more. If you look up concerned, what's the emotion that goes with grave, somber, and concerned? Fear. Mm -hmm. It's fear. You dig? Mm -hmm. I'm not frightened enough. That's why I can't play with this shit. I need to be more scared. Mm. So I went, shit, this is wrong. So I went into the thesaurus and I looked up, you know, something, some other word that might be uh, applicable in there. And I found another word that starts with an S. And it also has seven letters. It's sincere. Mm. <laughs> And if you're sincere about things, it means caring, honest, and open, giving. That's what I want to be as a sincere teacher. I want to care about my students, you know, and I want to, I don't want to <clears throat> anybody to be afraid. I help people escape the fear if I can. Mm -hmm. you know? A little bit of news for you that I've recently retired. No kidding. Yep. And with the, <clears throat> Two and a half years ago, I took a very bad fall and trashed the entire right side of my body. Mm. So I'm on, I've been on a walker, wheelchairs. I can't walk on my own. I can stumble a little bit about six or eight feet with a cane, mm -hmm. but I can't go for a walk. And I've been traveling the world in wheelchairs and a walker. I got a four wheeled walker over here mm -hmm. that I go with, and I have to sit on airplanes and, and in wheelchairs and and go on stage in a wheelchair or a walker and handicapped rooms and hotels and can't get into a restaurant with a walker. It's just been two and a half years of aggravation. Mm. And I kept thinking of, damn it, I wish I hadn't fallen. But, you know, once you do, it's life changing. And I've had, I spent four weeks in a hospital. I had two serious surgeries, mm -hmm. seven hour surgeries each. They replaced everything on the right side of my body, both knees, the femur, my hip. I have metal parts in my right arm, broken shoulders, both of them, pins in, in my feet, everything. So I said, you know, I was trying to make, do some gigs. I was still booked for a lot this summer. 
And when the pandemic hit, <clears throat> uh, it hit and it was on March 10th. And I thought, you know, I was supposed to get up that next morning and fly to Oakland, California. And plus to add to this, they had just recently found out I have an issue with my heart. So I've been on heart monitors and uh, uh, echocardiograms and stuff like that. Uh, so I'm going onto a CPAP machine pretty soon. Mm -hmm. I'm not really like dead, you know, but I've got to <laughs> watch. I've got to watch what I'm doing, you know. Yeah. And, and you know, and the thing about I love teaching. I'm going to just stay home and teach, and teach online master classes and mm -hmm. and you know I can do group master classes. I've been doing them for years in schools. Mm -hmm even when everybody was in the room together. Now they're all on separate computers, but mm -hmm. uh, I'm doing them for different people. I'm doing one in Nashville on how to practice during the pandemic and stuff like that. I'm doing that in July for Nashville mm -hmm. Jazz Society. And uh, so I, I do these, you know, things. I'm gonna stay home and be with my wife and the dog and mm -hmm. not have to deal with all of the traveling. I mean, I'm gonna miss a lot of friends and I'm gonna miss a lot of high level playing to be able to get on a bandstand with people like Phil Woods and people like that, which I've done many, many times in my mm -hmm. life with Tom Harrell and all that. Mm -hmm. But it's time to stop, you know, because my wife is worried and, and my doctors are worried and they don't want to see me out there dying on a fucking airplane someplace, you know? So, well, you can still make a world of difference sitting right there. I mean, in this hour and a half that we've been on, believe it or not, an hour and a half, um, yeah. I mean, I, I can't imagine that you still don't have so much to contribute to so many people. And so you say you're retired, but that's just from... Well, not from the, playing, not from... T I'm just yeah. from traveling. Yeah. Just from traveling. I'm not... Yeah. Boy, my horn's right here, and I play every day a little bit, you know, and mm -hmm. there's not much going on here as far as jazz clubs or anything around here, but there's a few things around, and I don't need to go out and play every night, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. I have, uh, uh, when, when the pandemic is not existing, for all the 14 years I've been here, I have a beautiful separate building with a 2,500 square foot studio. It's big enough for a big band, mm -hmm. you know, and it's attached to an indoor swimming pool and a gym and everything. I got all the things. I, I live in a huge 4,600 square foot home. I mean, I'm in good shape, you know, mm -hmm. and uh, I'm, I still get all the royalties from Elvis Presley and all of the the movies that I did, you know, stuff like mm -hmm. I just, I love to teach and that's something I can do. I've got a new, <coughs> the 13 year old kid I told you about. I'm starting another student on Friday, this coming Friday. She's 10 and she's never touched the trumpet yet. Wow. Well, I think that's not right because I, this guy bought a trumpet from me for her and I sent him a mouthpiece I wanted to start on. I don't want her starting on a box 7C because that's where a lot of the problems start from right there. Mm -hmm. She's 10 years old. She's got an overbite. She's a tiny little girl. I want her, I put her on an M cup type of thing like this instead of a big bowl thing, which will be easier. She'll respond quicker. Mm -hmm. Her tops will grow faster. She can move to more classical mouthpiece later. But in the early days, I want her to win, 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 win. You know, I want her to say, Oh shit! These things are easy to play. Right. You know? <laughs> I seem to remember that coming out of my own mouth uh -huh. a few years ago. So I'm taking on. This is a shock for me, but I'm taking on beginners, and I've now decided that yeah, this is where I could really do some good. 
you know, is to get kids that are just getting started and get them in on a foundation thing that is going to build up their chops properly without misdirection and without pinch, press and pray without, and put, and take that fear factor out of them, mm -hmm. get them improvising, get them closing their eyes, hearing shit in their head. You know, I think we can turn out better musicians by doing this. And so Gustav Kohl's, if I know something and I don't pass it on, I'm, I'm a crime of omission in it. You know? Yeah. I ain't going there. Yeah. So, so. I'm, I'm sticking with it. I'm quite happy with it. It was very emotional for me at first because I love to play so much and, and I, I, I can't imagine not playing. But the playing and the teaching are contributions for me, mm -hmm. you know. The, the playing sometimes it's a little, eh, it's for my own fun, you know, but when I'm teaching, it's for everybody's, you know, somebody else. Right. Yeah. Something back. And so I feel yeah. good about that. And, and uh, it's, you know, over the weeks of this pandemic thing and everything, it's, I've had a lot of time to think about it. Talk, discuss it with some friends and mm -hmm. my wife and my daughter and, and some other musicians friends that are real close to me you know I'm mm -hmm. with most people will say you know it's great that you're doing this because it's probably the healthiest thing like smartest move in the world for my health you know I can stick mm -hmm. around this way and not have to beat myself up in this yeah. O'Hare airport and stuff like yeah. that yeah. so I'm going to I'm enjoying what I'm doing and I think it's going to be fine. And I'm, I've got a book underway, you know, I started the book about seems like 50 years ago mm -hmm. and then I stopped writing it and I, I realized that I'm learning faster than I can write stuff down. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But I'm, I'm ready to put it all together now. I think, you know, well, terrific. I can't wait to, for that to come out hopefully soon. Anything I can do for you, just let me know. No, no hesitation. Thank you uh, for, you did exactly what you were just talking about. You did a 180. You shared with me and, and hopefully other listeners that are going to check in then on this. You did exactly what you were talking about. You took what you've learned over these years and you're giving it back. And, uh, you know, this hour and a half, you know, I feel like it's just me and it felt great hearing all of this. So, so oh, thank okay. you. Thank you very much for that. And I, I appreciate you being here. Your time, you know, is, is precious. And uh, thank goodness that we're all kind of locked up. It makes it easy to do interviews <laughs> right now, but. This has been a really a treat, man. I have so much fun going back. And, yeah. And some <laughs> well, I had a great time. Recalling time. some of the crazy shit in my life, you know, it's, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I'm so blessed, man. I, I Thanks very much, man. Take care. Bye. Bye-bye. Thank you, everyone, for listening today. Tune in next week for another great interview. And one last reminder that you can help support this podcast by becoming a subscriber at patreon.com slash studiohfl. Your support would be most appreciated. And another special thanks to Messina Covers, the Eastman Music Company, and Pickett Blackburn for their support of this podcast. Thanks again. Now... Go practice.